thank you, thank you. What a wonderful day to be together with you. I am looking forward to this time. Uh, if, if you're here and, and uh, y- you know, th- maybe you're new to our church, you're just visiting, the, oh, okay, this is the sermon time, and I'm hoping I get a nice vanilla frappuccino-type sermon that feels good, and, and, and uh, well, we, we serve black coffee here at Scottsdale Bible Church, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and we're going to serve some today. But I want to do it graciously and kindly because we care about you and we want to see everybody stronger and better people. Now you look at the title and, and you see 10 things that every kid needs to know and you might want to just shut your brain off now because say, well, my kids are grown and gone or I don't have any kids. Actually, I could have entitled this 10 things everybody needs to know. But, but you know, I'm the executive director of Family Matters and for the past 32 years, we have been helping Families bring the best out of each other and, and, and create a, a, a dynamic at the home where homes are guided by God's truth and tempered by his grace. And I have found that we all do better at grasping things in our own life when we have to have them in them so well that we can hand them to somebody else and teach somebody else. And so there's another generation following all of us. And it behooves all of us, whether we have children or not, to have some things embedded in us that set them up for what they're called to be. But right now, we're living in a, a culture that says that really the, the, uh, our, our goal for the next generation is teach them to grow up to be successful. And that's where we get in trouble. God has not called us to raise kids to, to be successful. He's called us to raise kids who make a difference. And the way they make a difference is we show them how you make a difference in our own life. And so that's what I want to do today. Uh, I want to kind of use both ways of getting this to help us personally and also help us as we mentor a new generation. Neil Postman uh, said that he's a great writer uh, 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 on, on social issues. And he says, kids are a gift we send to a time we will not see. And because we're doing that, how do we do this well? Well, uh, well my dad, uh, uh, we had six kids, and, and dad and mom, um, dad, dad had two overarching expectations for us kids. He said, I want you in by 12, and I want you out by 18. <laughs> and, and <laughs> but, but he had a plan that when we were out by 18, we were ready to stand on our own two feet and move into the world and thrive. Well, if we, if we drink the Kool-Aid of this culture, we won't be able to do that. So hopefully, I want to give you a list. And as we go through this list, and we're going to cover a lot of ground, we're going to cover a lot of scripture today. As I do this, the, the, the hope is, is that maybe for once, we have a, a, a list that can really give us some real guidance on, on the things that, that, that we really need to be embedding into a next generation rather than all the stuff that's bombarding them, the false messaging, and then the pressure from within them to go the wrong direction. So let's learn together and let's ask God for some help along the way. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for how much you love us. We thank you for this great idea you had called family. We thank you for the relationships you've uh, you've entrusted to each one of us. And we thank you for your word and how it guides us. And so we, we call on you now to give us guidance as we turn to your word and learn together. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I, I would highly recommend, if you want to retain this, to get the, the uh, outline out of your, note, uh, out of your uh, bulletin and follow along with me. I have 10, uh, 10 points. 
what kind of a fool would come up with 10 points in a brief sermon, but let's see, uh, let's do our best. First one is this. First thing you want your kids to know, regarding life in general, the world doesn't owe you a thing. Nobody owes you anything. By the way, there is no free lunch, there is no you-know-who, and welfare is supposed to be temporary. So we're off to a great start, aren't we? We live in a world that uh, is very different than a lot of us grew up in as children. Uh, I was in a middle-class family, probably lower middle-class family, but the middle-class today really has options at, at their fingertips and beck and call that we would consider the wealthy had when we were younger people. And so a lot, there, there's a lot of things that were easier to embed into kids when we were younger just because you didn't have a lot of the options that you have at middle class living now. But the fact is, is that, that there's a lot of sense of entitlement going on. And, and, and where it, it, it gets after our kids is their ability to have a strong work ethic. They've got to have a strong work ethic for them to thrive in the future. And then, and then raising kids here in Scottsdale, these are kids, are, the, the, the adage is, these are kids who are born on third base, but under the delusion, they hit a triple. They didn't hit anything. <laughs> they didn't hit anything. And then we're kind of encouraged to grease the skids for home and make it easy to score. But when we do that, we undermine them. We undermine their ability not only to thrive, but to make a difference and really be the kind of citizen that our country needs and the kind of member of a, a family that they, they want to be. We need to, we need to make sure that our kids leave our homes with a lifelong commitment to making a grand effort to the day they die and to make it enthusiastically, to have an enthusiastic attitude towards work. But it's hard to teach our kids uh, to, to work hard when we, 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 so many things are done for them or we do it for them. And I think we're inclined to do it for them because we bought into the success illusion. And we're measuring them by, uh, we, we think success is more about net worth and the accumulation of goods and the status and position you hold in life and we want to get them there. And so we put all that priority on there and not the stuff of the heart that they need. Uh, uh, there was a mother who uh, was so wrapped up in the success illusion, so desirous of her kid to be successful, but her son had gone off to college and she just didn't feel like he had all it took to make it. And so she continued her role of waking him up every morning. And she would call him, she was his wake up call. And she also knew everything, he knew his schedule, knew what class he had, what quizzes, what papers were due, what books needed to be read, what, and so forth. And so she called, honey, good morning, it's your mama, time to get up and do your work and so forth. And, and make sure you have this and this and this. And I was brought into this family to kind of umpire this one and, and, and try to help her see. Now, I'm looking out over this crowd. We have a lot of men here. How many of you men are raising daughters or have raised a daughter? Okay, let's, hands up. Okay, I've raised two. two okay, a lot of us have daughters. Over there in the venue, many of you guys raising daughters. Now, I have stood at the back of a church twice, and, and if you haven't done this, your time is gonna come. Some beautiful setting, and you're gonna be back there, and you're gonna look down, your daughter is gonna be looking as beautiful as she's ever looked in her life. And she's gonna put her arm through yours, and you're gonna walk her down the aisle, and you're gonna take her hand and put it into the hand of a young man. My question to you is, would you like to place your daughter's hand into the hand of a young man whose mother woke him up every morning in college. <laughs> I mean, who's kidding who? We've got to teach our children to work, and we've got to show them what that looks like by the way they watch us. 
have an enthusiastic attitude towards work. I don't want to be a name dropper, but God actually weighed in on this. Look at this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. Do everything you can to live a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your hands, just as we told you. Then unbelievers will have respect for your everyday life. Your everyday life. Not just your life, but how you live your life every day. And you won't, and you won't have to depend on anyone. And, and now, now, that was an agrarian uh, economy back then. People were tradesmen or, or farmers. We're, we're, we're in a, a technological economy. And, and we work with our minds. So, so you could just say, work with your, your mind just as we told you. We need to help them do this. Look at 1 Timothy 5.8. Everyone should provide for his own relatives. Most of all, everyone should take care of his own family. If he doesn't, he's left the faith. He is worse than someone who doesn't believe. And we, we do our kids no favors to send them on in the future. And then when the going gets tough, they want to hit cruise control. Or they want to default to us and see if we can help them through it all. There's times to intervene in emergencies. We all understand that. But remember, welfare is supposed to be temporary. They need to know how to work hard. One more. Uh, Proverbs 6, verses 9 through 11. This is uh, rendered in the message. So how long are you going to laze around doing nothing? How long before you get out of bed? A nap here, a nap there, a day off here, a day off there. Sit back. Take it easy. Do you know what comes next? Just this. You can look forward to a dirt poor life, poverty, your permanent house guest. You know, I, I, when I see kids that struggle with ambition and then try, their parents often, I'll hear them say, well, I think my daughter's afraid of failure or my son's afraid of failing. And that's why they don't try. And I look at it, I think they're afraid of succeeding because they know how hard you have to work to do that. But we need to build that into them. And a lot of it is we create an environment in their life where they do have to step up. We'll talk more about this. Let's look at the next one here regarding money. If you don't learn to live below your means, you'll never have enough money and will end up broke. It's just the way it is. Uh, the, the prevailing economy that we are in wants everybody on earth to make two car payments and two credit card payments every month for the rest of their life to the day they die. Now, if we buy into that, if we drink that Kool-Aid, you're never going to have money when you need it and you're not going to have enough when you get to the end, to your twilight years. It just doesn't work that way. Debt will kill us. The, the good thing is that uh, if you, it, all you have to learn how to do is one thing, live below your means. That creates margin. But, but when you see people that struggle with this, their solutions, well, I just need to get a raise. I want to talk to my boss and I want to get more money. If I just had a better salary, I could do better. Or maybe if I get the right scratcher and hit the lottery for once, I can make it. No, that won't do anything. You'll just mismanage more money, that's all. You got to learn to do this, and we got to teach our kids how to do it. And the way we teach them is they watch us do it. They see how it's done by how we live our life. Ron Blue really unpacked some um, great principles on this, and, and I'm going to rattle through those. And, and, and you need to know when, when you obey these principles, it doesn't matter how much you make, you're going to do fine. And that's once again that goes against counter counterculture. Everybody thinks you got to make more money in order to succeed. No, you need to handle whatever money you have well. And the people that really turn out well financially are the prevailing majority of them were not people that made extraordinary incomes. They're people that made average incomes but handled them well. And they went through life, and sure enough, they figured out how to make that stuff work. And it will work for you. Look at these. I'm going to rattle off five real quick 
uh, principles on money from Ron Blue. God owns it all. If you start here, you get way ahead. When you realize that God owns all of our money, we're stewards of it. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. From Haggai chapter 2, verse 8. Look at this one. Every spending decision is a spiritual decision. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so when we have that mindset that it's all his anyways, and we may allocate a percentage directly to specific things that, 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 uh, that uh, support his kingdom work. And he says, I, I don't have a problem with you. I, I, I want you to provide for you. And I don't have a problem with you having a nice home and a nice car, a nice thing. Just re remember, every time you make a decision, spending decision, it's a spiritual one. And then uh, look at this one. Avoid the indulgent lifestyle. We've got to work against this success illusion that measures our value by superficial things. First uh, John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. For all, and here's how, here's, he, he tells us why. Because all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. And here's why you don't, it's not make sense to, to let that set our, our agenda for us because the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And not only do we abide forever in heaven, forever starts right now here on earth as he starts to sustain us through time and space until we get to eternity. I, I have a friend in another um, state, and he sells these high-end uh, luxury cars uh, with, 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 a, with a powerful uh, hood ornament. And, 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 um, and these are wonderful cars, and they're, 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 they're high-quality cars. And, and, and he'll, he, he says, you know, obviously, there, there's wealthy people who come in, and they, they, they pay cash for these cars, and, and they, they can afford to, and they, they, they can afford to buy a quality car. He says, but the bulk of the cars that I sell are to people, and I see their finances, and they're a paycheck away, for, away from total oblivion. They really cannot afford this car. They're buying it in order to make a statement that isn't true. They're big hat, no cattle. And, 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 and he says it's just a matter of time when this catches up with them. And we don't want to have our kids seeing us living an indulgent lifestyle. And then look at this one. Don't pursue wealth. You see, it's, it's one thing to end up wealthy because you handled your money well and you worked hard. Nothing wrong with that. But when you're pursuing it, I need this. Now you're in trouble because once you need this, you'll never be satisfied. And an unsatisfied person is a person that doesn't really make a lot of difference in the world. It says, do not toil, in Proverbs 23, 4 and 5, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Listen, we don't, when we don't need all that this world has to offer, it's a much more pleasant place to live. Furthermore, when we don't need all that this world has to offer, we're much more pleasant people to live around. And so we need these. One, one, one last one, avoid the trap of consumer debt. The rich, uh, in Pro Proverbs 22, 7 says, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. Darcy and I have been married 42 years next month. Um, we got married in Annapolis, Maryland, and our honeymoon was basically driving across the country from Annapolis to Dallas, Texas to start uh, graduate school at Dallas Seminary one week later. Uh, when we left, 
I'd, I'd already paid for a semester of grad school and two months in advance on a house that we had not seen, but I negotiated a, a little place to stay, uh, a little apartment. And, uh, and then I owned the car we were in and we had the gifts from our wedding uh, behind us in a little uh, thing and we had $325 be- between us. 42 years, we've raised four kids. We've never lacked for anything. But I think a lot of it has to do with that first week. We were driving down the road, and here's the highway out ahead of us, as well as our whole life as a married couple ahead of us. And we said, Let, let's make some decisions about money. Since we're finally a team here, what are we going to do? And we made, we made three decisions. Let's never get in debt. Let's never get in debt. We're talking about consumer debt. In other words, something you buy that isn't worth what you just paid for it if you wanted to give it back. Or, or, or things that are consumed, like food or things like that, clothing, uh, automobiles, things like that. Let's never get in consumer debt. Let's always give first fruits to God. It's his anyways. And let's start at 10%, but as he increases our income, let's scotch up the percentage. And then thirdly, let's always pay ourselves something out of every dollar we make and put it in the bank and don't touch it and make a second financial stream into our life. Well, well it, this is not that difficult. And we were in ministry. They don't pay people in ministry much money, but we've never lacked for anything. And it can happen for, and we need to teach this to our kids because some of your kids may be called to, to things where payday, they don't get highly rewarded, but they'll be just fine if they know these principles. All right. Now, let's, let's go to number, the third truth we need to pass on. And that is regarding your mistakes, take responsibility when you mess up. Everybody messes up. Some big time. Admit it. Ask for forgiveness. Stand up. Own up. Don't make excuses. Take your lumps. Get over it. And then move on. We all mess up. But right now, we're living in a culture that when they really mess up, they want to find some legal dream team to get them off the hook and possibly blame somebody else for it that didn't have any, uh, wasn't the cause of it. I mean, that's not the way this is supposed to be. We've got to own our mistakes. I was brought up in a home where you had no choice but to own your mistakes. Uh, Maybe this is a good time to tell you my criminal record. I was 13 years old. My friend Bob and I were uh, bored, and it had been a long winter, and, and we hadn't been out, able to play much. And, 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 and um, this, uh, we were, uh, it was a weekend, and, and we were bored, and we knew there was a summer cottage that was locked up, boarded up for the winter, that had a slot machine in it. And we thought, if we could get in there, we could play that thing. So we got all of our money, we broke it into nickels, we jimmied the lock, got inside, plugged it in, warmed it up, played it, played it, played it, and we won some money. We kept playing it till it had all of our money and all of its money back. And once we were out of money, we unplugged it. We made sure the deadbolt shut. We came around the corner, and there were two county police officers sitting here in their cars waiting on us. Somebody called us in. And they separated us right away, put us in their cars. My friend Bob's father was a state trooper of the state of Maryland. They called him. He said, send him home. I'll deal with him. They called my dad. I could only hear half the conversation. He wanted to know, what do you do when you pick up a kid? Well, we take him up to the station and we deal with him. And you come and get him and he'll have to talk to the juvenile judge to see what's going to happen. Okay, take him on up there. Call me when you need me. So I went up there and, and then they asked what they do. They intimidate you. They ask you about all these unsolved crimes and, uh, you know, liquor store robberies and things like that. And where were you when Lindbergh's baby disappeared? I mean, that was decades ago. I was not even born yet. Well, anyway, and it basically make you feel real small. And then dad came and got me. Obviously, I was in trouble. He didn't scream and yell at me. He wasn't surprised his kid was foolish. He gave birth to a sinner. 
He just wanted to make sure I learned from this, but I was in trouble. I was grounded and I had chores to do and then I had to go talk to the judge and the judge was, I mean, he, he really came down and he said, I can't believe you're standing in front of me. You, the way, the way you've been raised and all the people that we've invested in your lives and all these teachers and Sunday school teachers and little league coaches and, and your neighbors, you the last person should be here. Here's what I have the power to do to you. And he laid it out and it was awful what he could do to me. But he said, it looks like you've never done this before so I'm gonna let you go on one condition. And it's this condition, I never see you here again. But if you come back, I promise you, I guarantee you, Timothy James Kimmel, this is what I'm gonna do to you. And then he laid it out, and it was awful. That's my criminal record. <laughs> I never did anything like that again. My friend Bob has been in the West Virginia State Penitentiary twice. Send him home. Image control, I'm a state trooper. Don't make me look bad. I'll handle this. He was more concerned about his image and his reputation than he was about his son. Did I embarrass my parents? Oh, the word got around the little Baptist church he went to. Howard and Winnie Kimmel's kid got picked up by the cops. I embarrassed them, but they were more concerned that their son didn't grow up to be a fool. And they were more concerned that we own our messes. And fortunately, we have a God that comes alongside and helps us clean up those messes. And so this is vital to us. We cannot bid, embed this into our kids if we don't, if we don't uh, live it out ourselves. Look at James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another one, uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, Jesus is talking here in 20, verse 23. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there remember a brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Take responsibility for what you've done and hurt them or whatever, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. It's all about taking personal responsibility. Let's look at number four. Regarding who you are, never define yourself by your victories or your defeats. Because if you do, you'll be doomed to be a has-been hero or an ongoing loser. And now, now, the World Cup's going on, and we see all these wonderful athletes, the finest uh, soccer athletes in the world coming in and playing. But in the end, there's only one team that's going to get the gold medal. It, it, very seldom do, we, do you stand on the top septum in life, and yet you can do just fine uh, if you just uh, walk with God. You know, I wrote a book called In Praise of Plan B because I've been living Plan B all my life. Everybody wants a Plan A, but I found that if you hand a Plan B over to God, he can take that and eclipse your best laid uh, plans for a Plan A any day. Most success stories are of average people who just consistently showed up and played their position. And if I can use a football analogy, they just kept falling forward. They, they're going to get tackled. It's going to hurt. But just get a few yards every time. And eventually you fall across the end zone. You, you, you win. Just keep at it. And so we got to make sure that we don't let the highs and lows become our defining features. Darcy and I were flying uh, to Tampa, uh, Florida one time. And we had lifted off out of uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, and because I, I travel so much, and I, I have so many miles, they, they default me to the front of the plane so much. We were sitting up in the, that little uh, nicer section there in, in the comfortable seats, and the man had started drinking when we were taking off, and he got fairly well plastered. About halfway through the flight, he got up, and, and he kind of staggered over, and he came to Darcy, and he says, hey, lady, pretty lady, do you know who I am? And of course, 
She didn't recognize him. And he says, I'm the great Bobby Hayes. And, and then she looked at me and said, well, he was a wide receiver for Dallas Cowboys. We've seen him play ball. We were in grad school. And, and then he filled in more of his resume about how and he broke the NCAA record in the, in the 100. He was drafted by our U.S. Olympic team and, and represented us at the 64 Tokyo Olympics. He, he, he tied the world record in the 100. He broke the world record in the four by, got the gold medal. And then he reached in his blazer pocket and took out that gold medal with his faded ribbon and put it right down in front of Darcy. I'm Bobby the Bullet Hayes. I'm the fastest man in the world. And this happened decades ago. And we felt so sorry for Bobby Hayes. We felt so sorry that he didn't think that he would be appreciated by us as a human being just because he's a human being. Just because he's him. That he had to have some high water mark and use that as his calling card to gain our approval. You see, that, that goes both ways too. Maybe you've had some Waterloo nightmare experience or you've made some horrible mistake or a series of them and Satan wants to lock you down and put the big old L letter on you. You're a loser. Jesus didn't go to the cross to die for losers. And we need to understand this. In Philippians chapter three, verses four through 13, this is a long passage, so let me skip down here to verse eight because Paul lays out a glorious resume that he could easily... Uh, be uh, uh, brag about, but in verse 8 he says, indeed I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then verse 14 says, I press on toward the goal of the prize up with the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he also knew how it was like to be kicked around and, 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 and left with nothing. In Philippians chapter four, next chapter, verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking about being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and, and, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. His identity was totally in Christ, not in his accomplishments or his failures. These things happen. They are moments in time. And the, the accomplishments can be celebrated. The, 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 the pains can be hurt. And, and, and we, we, we go through the, 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 the hurt and the process of that. But we move on. Let's look at number five. Regarding cause and effect. Since you usually reap what you sow and can be absolutely certain your sins will eventually find you out so wisely. And don't let bad habits master your life. Uh, Numbers 32, 23 is a good verse on it. He says, be sure your sins will find you out. But I think an even better one is in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For what you sow, you will, uh, you will also reap. He's basically saying, don't be foolish here. I'm not going to be made a fool of by anyone. What you sow, you can plan on getting that back. In my first 10 years of my life, I lived in Pennsylvania, out in the country. I was surrounded by cornfields and wheat fields. And they're great examples of this law of the harvest. There's three wonderful things you can learn from them that help us not to make wrong, uh, uh, wrong choices here. They, when they take two or three kernels of corn and put it in there, when they grow up, there's, you know, they don't get grapes. They don't get pears. They get corn every time. Whatever you sow, that's what's coming. That's, that's what you're getting back. So we want to make sure that we're sowing the right kind of things. We don't sow deception or anger or rage. We sow integrity, faith, endurance, and courage. 
Another thing, a lot of the reasons why people many times when we're doing foolish things, uh, we think it's not, no harm. Well, because it's not harvest time, because they sow it in the spring. They don't take it out till the fall. There's a lag time between sowing and reaping. And many times we think nothing's going to happen to us. It's not harvest time yet. And then when harvest time comes, those seeds, they put two or three pieces of corn in there. When you come up, there's several ears. And if you took them and took all those corn things and, and put them, there's, there's, there's hundreds, maybe even a thousand pieces of corn. Whatever we sow, multiply. And so we want to make sure that we're sowing the right things and showing our kids this wonderful, important lesson. Number six, regarding others, use things, love people. It's how the golden rule works under pressure. Other people are more important than you. If you live your life with their best interests in mind, you'll always have friends and will probably never go hungry because people want you to hang out with them. I love this verse, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. We need to be asset-type friends. And, and the way to have good asset-type friends is be an asset-type friend. Be somebody that brings the best out of people, that cares about them. And this, what we need to lead with on this one is humility. Uh, we, we lead with humility and we spend our time building up others. We're always better off. Look at number seven. And by the way, we live in a, a self-absorbed world. It's a very narcissistic world we're surrounded by. There's a lot of showboating and reality shows and the narcissism that you often see on Facebook. And we need to help our kids rise above this and show them what it's like. Number seven, regarding love. Love isn't a feeling. It's a commitment based on a commandment and sealed by a decision. Your feelings can enhance love, but they aren't supposed to determine it. Love is a commitment and in marriage it's a covenant and the time it is most exercised and experienced is when you choose to love in spite of your feelings. Uh, Darcy and I, like I say, have been married uh, over four decades, and, and we've found that in marriage, marriage is a lot like the earth. It goes through seasons. The love in the marriage goes through seasons. We, we got married in that fresh springtime type love. What we were hoping is we spend the rest of our time in that hot summer love. Now, nah, it'd be exciting. But the fact is, we've had some autumn love we had to process. We've had some winter love we have to process. It just goes with the territory, and it gets brittle and cold and distant. And it's easy to want to, you know, to, to cash it all in. But listen, some of the worst winters set up some of the greatest springtimes. We've got to stick with this. Let me give you a definition that might help you on this. Because I believe when you define love properly and you commit to that definition, it helps you through. I love this definition. It's the one that we, we, we developed among ourselves to define love and we love to share it with others. Love is a commitment of my will to your needs and best interests regardless of the cost. Love is a commitment of my will to your needs and best interests, regardless of the cost. That's the kind of God love Christ had for us. Let's look at number eight. By the way, if you're not getting all this, they, they'll have it on, 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 online by this afternoon, and you can go back through it slowly and get it all down. Uh, I have limited time. Look at number eight. Regarding your feelings, don't think with your emotions. Feel with them. They don't know how to think and have no capacity to accurately process reality. Emotions are free agents. They don't have to tell us the truth. They're supposed to just feel. They're the exhaust system of our soul. They let off steam from inside of us with either tears or laughter. They're wonderful things, and I'm not saying deny them, but when it's time to make a decision, you must use the truth, facts, logic, and common sense. 
We live in a world where people would rather feel good than do good. And we let our feelings run our life. And I think that's one of the overriding problems I see in people today. They, they think with their emotions, and our emotions will mislead us. I, I, we were married about eight years. And I, def, I, 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 I uh, said something to Darcy that sounded like something Oprah would say or something. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking, but I said, or lately I haven't felt very married. I haven't felt very married. I said, what? I haven't felt very married. We're sitting in our little kitchen table. She got up and left it, walked out of the room, headed down the other end of the house. I thought, well, that didn't go well. <laughs> but what she, was, she was going to a, a, a file cabinet, and she came back with something, a document. I hadn't seen it since my wedding day when I signed it. And she put, I didn't know they gave us a copy, and she put it down there. And uh, I had other things on my mind at the time. And, 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 and she put it down and says, uh, Tim, this thing here says you're married. Now, you can feel whatever way you want, but this thing says you're married. And should you decide to get unmarried, this document here says you'll regret it. <laughs> there was a uh, country song in the country rotation on the radio back then by Jerry Reed. went something like, she got the gold mine, I got the shaft. And she was basically saying... <laughs> I, it doesn't matter how we feel here. We're married. We got to make the, the, the kind of choices you make when you make a commitment. Jesus understood what it's like to have an overwhelming sense of, uh, of emotional stress on him and have to make a hard decision. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane just before the witching hour of the crucifixion. Look at this in Matthew chapter 26. Verse 36. In fact, let me just set it up. He takes the disciples out there and then, and then look at 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here, watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face to his, and prayed to his father, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He knew what was coming down. How awful that would be. He was fully man. He was fully God. And as fully man, he, he, he was thinking, is there a way? And yet, when it was time, he got up. He said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He made his choice based on the truth, the facts, logic, common sense. He came here to redeem us, and he wasn't backing down of it. Number nine, regarding your attitude, don't take life so seriously that you forget to laugh, refuse to cry, or are too self-conscious to dance. We just got to let, you know, enjoy life more, not take ourselves so seriously. I mean, I'm very serious about life, but I'm not so, I don't take myself so seriously. We, we you know, where does, we got to have humor in our life. Where do we get this from? We're made in God's image. God loves a good joke. He loves a good party. I, I, when I get to heaven, I, one of the first things I want to do is go to the library, get the DVD of Jesus turning the water into wine. I want to see, he, he decided to launch his ministry at a party, at a wedding. I want to see him doing the electric slide there with all the other people. I, it's got to be so cool. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 and 4. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Before I give you number 10, let's kind of do the application right now. How do we build these into the lives of the next generation? Let me just rattle off a simple way. Uh, these are not hard to build into kids' lives, uh, it, it, especially if you do the first one. Be an example of these 10 truths. You show them what these are like in day-to-day -day life. Don't go home and do a Bible study with your kids or grandkids. Oh, we're going to learn these 10 wonderful things. Just putting it in their head is nothing. They got to see it in our life. And then 
Secondly, make these 10 truths the expectation of them rather than the exception in your home. This is all we do. This is how we operate here. And then uh, provide opportunities for your kids to experience these as a lifestyle. And then encourage these truths by valuing and praising your kids' efforts. You say, why should we praise our kids to do what they're supposed to do anyway? Well, I... Once again, I don't want to be a name dropper, but Jesus said that when he, we come into heaven, he wants to be able to be there with his nail-scarred hands applauding and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. He knows the power of encouragement, and we want to do that. And now, now, now you might be saying, wow, I wish somebody would have given me this list earlier. Well, you've got it now. If you say, well, I left out a lot of the pieces here, don't beat yourself up. This isn't the end of the world. There's plenty of time to build these into your kids by also building them into yours. And, and, and you, you're surrounded right now by a context of a church that wants to help you. They, they, will, they do not want to build these into your kids. They want to help you build them into them. It's our job. And they want to, but they want to do by helping building it into you. And we have wonderful, uh, uh, be, between uh, spiritual foundations, the men's ministry, the women's ministry, the family ministry, and then we have a pastor that comes here consistently every Sunday and shows us how to live lives that are, that are guided by God's truth and tempered by his grace. And they want to help you. If you have financial issues, we have Crown Ministry here to help you to get you beyond that. Oh, great, the last one. Regarding God. There is a God whether you want to acknowledge it or not. He has spoken whether you want to listen or not. He loves you whether you want to believe it or not, but he'll only forgive you if you ask him to. This is something we must embed in the next generation, and they need to see that by how we respond to God. There's some scripture there that backs all those things up. Listen, it is foolish to say that there is no God, but it's equally foolish to say that there is a God, but live your life like you don't believe it because the Bible says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. No matter who it was in history, we're all gonna do that. Now some of you are here because you're passionate about your relationship with God, but others are just here because this is Sunday and this is what you do. This is your tradition or whatever, but as far as the God thing, you might be more in cruise control and going through the motions. Please, 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 let me just say this. There's something far worse than ignoring God and that's getting to that moment when you wish you hadn't, but it's too late. When we're done with our service here, there's gonna be people up here, and, 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 and they would love to pray with you. You say, I, God isn't gonna to talk to me. He has no, these people have no idea what, what mess I've made of my life and the sin that they, oh yes, they do. They know exactly what it's like to be forgiven of great things, and they wanna talk with you. Please don't let this day go by without talking to them. Um, our son, Cody, was a junior in high school, and he had said goodnight to me and gone to bed. I thought he'd gone to bed, but he was up. Something was on his mind, and he had gotten out of his journal. He was writing something. He came back out uh, uh, about an hour later. He said, Dad, Dad, I, uh, I wrote a poem. Would you like to hear it? And of course I would, and I'd like to close with this poem, close off our talk here on this. He said this, when all that ought to be is gone and freedom falls to feeling and all that life's been born to own gets lost in my soul stealing, when every color fades to gray and love seems but a stain and fleshly hope is thrown away, indeed, my God remains. When clouds form scenes of good times past and every road not traveled and all great things that never last and every goal unraveled, when thunder drowns the voice of truth and lies become my bane, I cry to God in my reckless youth and yes, he still remains. When birthdays seem like one more day 
and winter crowns my brow. When years long gone start to betray my body years from now, when death sneaks slowly to my bed and robs me of my pain, my soul will bless the day I said, thank God, my God remains. He is, he has, he does, and he will. And that's, I just want you to know that we at Scottsdale Bible just want to make sure that you have relationship with him. So please, if you need to talk with somebody, we want to talk with you after the service. But for the, for the, the bulk of us here, God knew that we have bad memories. We tend to forget things very fast. And so uh, just be, before the crucifixion, he gathered his disciples together and they had one last meal and he took two very common elements from that meal and gave them eternal significance in, in, in setting up the, the um, what we call communion. And, and I'm gonna pitch this right now to the folks over in the venue to have their own together. And we're gonna uh, enjoy this together. I'd like the ushers to come on down right now and, 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 and pass out the elements. And if you would, please hold on to them until we all have them and we'll come up and partake them together. <laughs> 